Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Rosary Griffin, Dr. Rosary Griffin, you, you were... You were on your way to go to walk the Camino, and then you had to call it off. And that's where this story starts. Good morning. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me to talk. Um, yes, yeah, I was on the way to the Camino with a friend of mine, but they just weren't up to the trip uh, at the coming closer to it. And in the meantime, the Ukraine uh, war was kicking off. And, of course, we saw all the images in our television sets in the sitting room. And a friend of mine, John O'Brien from Balamakuda, was doing a big collection of... Um, you know, filling up an Arctic truck uh, from gathering from stuff from all the local community. And he sent me on the notice uh, to, you know, spread the word, which I did. Um, and another mutual friend of ours, Paul Moynihan, rang me and said, Rosari, what can we do? We need to do something. And I said, I don't know, you need to talk to John. And so he went, uh, he went over with John, as it happens, to the Ukraine. And I was touching base with them all the time when they were there. And when my Camino... Um, didn't happen i said lads is there any opportunity for volunteering out there and they said yeah loads come on so now you are you're you're an interim director at the the center for global development at ucc so this is kind of this is almost the, the kind of stuff you work at isn't it it is actually, PJ, yeah. I do. Most of my work would have been in sub-Saharan Africa in very, very poor countries like Malawi, Lesotho, Uganda, I would have worked in. And uh, there you see different levels of poverty. I mean, extreme poverty, really. You know, people living in shacks or um, corrugated iron sort of huts, for want of a better word, with very little access to clean water or food. Um, so I would have been used to that, but not, funny enough, a war situation. This yeah. is very different. It felt to me more like the Holocaust, you know, when you really? saw all these streams of people coming over like refugees and you're and what really touched me were the older people, you know, um, people in their elderly people uh, just with their shopping bags filled with their whatever they could get to be like a little or a Tesco, yeah. you know, yeah. shopping bag and just have filled with yeah. clothes or whatever they could. And they're trundling along and they're worn out and they're exhausted. And you're thinking these people were my grandmother's age, you know, yeah. Um so one of the first things we did was to give them all a wheelie suitcase, you know, to help them to the next stage, wherever they were right. going from there. But completely displaced, you know, at that hour you of their lives. You went to horrendous. a place, I, forgive me, I'm unable to pronounce the name yes. of where you went. Oh, uh, and in fact, Peter, that's a very good point. I was there for ages and people were talking about Shemish. And I was there, where are they talking to? They were talking about the place we were in. But it's, it, 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 when you see it, it, it reads more like pretzel, 
Pres- Presbyzil, I would have called it. But it's called what? Yes. Shemish. Shemish. I used to think Shemish. So that's just inside the <laughs> border. We, we talked to people who were on both sides of the border in the very early days yes. of the war. People who were fleeing for the border were talking to us about just literally everything. Anything that could go into the car went into the car. Yes. Anything that couldn't got left behind. And and they were yes. and then waiting for waiting for days to try and get to the border. So you were on the other yes. side of the border in this little place called Shemish. And what were you? Doing. Exactly. Well, it was like um, a, sh- a shopping centre. So what they decided to do, the, the, the border point was called um, Medica. And so initially what happened was when people were coming over the border from the Ukraine to Poland, uh, they would, um, they would the, the NGOs set up there. But the problem was there was a lot of trafficking going on there in the early days because obviously the traffickers saw a great opportunity. People would take photographs of whole families on the other side, pass them over to their um, criminal counterparts on the Polish side of the border. And then they target them. Oh, do you want to lift to the station? And next thing, this family disappears. So then they had to regulate it a little bit more. So they, the Polish uh, government set up um, at the border uh, bus buses to bus them straight to this shopping centre in Shemish, which was a disused shopping centre, I hasten to add. So all the shops would have been um, emptied out and what was in them was um, beds. So we had our own shop, which had our own, we'll say, bedding. And I'm talking about camp beds now with about six inches between um, each camp beds. And we had about 20 and we shared that with um, Finland and the UK. So anyone going on to the Finland or the UK would actually um, sleep there. We designed them a ticket Mm. or to Ireland, sorry. And we designed them a ticket to that place. But initially they were put in a massive warehouse sort of full of camp beds until they determined where they were going to go. So what John determined when he went over was that um, he said, Rosari, all the different um, all the different uh, countries have their own little information booth set up, but Ireland doesn't have any. And I said, well, wh- well, why don't you set up one? And he said, well, we don't have the authority to do so, really. So I said, find out what kind of authority the others have and yeah. see what, how they're doing it. So anyway, it turned out that everybody was there in a voluntary capacity. So they hoisted the flag. He was working with another guy called um, Joey Redmond. So himself, uh, John and Paul and Joey, hoisted the flag and set up um, a computer and started logging people with funds that they had, um, community funds that they'd raised, uh, logging people onto flights to get into Ireland. Now, any Ukrainian had the right to um, free buses and railway pass to anywhere in Europe. That was immediately facilitated by the EU. But to get to Ireland, obviously, uh, a flight was probably more um, efficient. Now, I have to say at this point, not too many people wanted to go to Ireland. I mean, most of them wanted to go to Poland because they all wanted to go home yeah. or they, they wanted to go to Germany. So they really prioritised the border countries to the Ukraine. Yeah. They weren't wholly interested in going to Ireland, but you did get a quite, you know, you did get a certain interest. Um, and then their main priority when they come to your our information desk. So that's what I did. I went out to man the desk then um, and lorry drivers would come along, deposit all their, all the stuff that they gathered, you know, from the communities. And that was all used. So I have to say to the people of Cork, everything you sent out was used yeah. and it was used methodically and systematically. It was all organized so that they come in, they grab what they needed. Um, and then they decided they had 48 hours to decide in this center where they were going. And the two key questions they would ask me at the desk was, one, um, could, had they the right to work? 
Like they wanted to work if yes. they came to Ireland. They didn't want, and they never asked about social welfare ever. Nothing. Uh, but the other question they had is, they, would they be homeless? Because they were they were afraid of being homeless. Needless to say, so obviously these people, mostly women and children coming with families, didn't want to end up in the streets. Sure. So all I could guarantee them was, you won't be homeless. We'll do our best to take care of you. But I also had to manage expectations because, to be honest with you, I didn't know. Um, how well Ireland was set up at that point. You know, it wasn't, I mean, it was, they were only setting up City West at that point where everybody would go there and then mm. be sorted out from there. And I had friends who were working there, so they kind of filled me in on what happened when the Ukrainians came to Ireland. So what would happen was they'd be met at the port by the Red Cross, Irish Red Cross, and some Irish officials. Mm. They'd be brought to City West, sorted out from there, and I discovered that single people then would go, like single men or women would be brought to one place and families would be brought to somewhere else. Yeah. So families were kind of kept together. Plans were made very quickly. Oh, horrendous. Can you imagine? Like you're an elderly couple, a woman couple. I have to say that they made me laugh because they were 50 years married. So that meant they had to be at least in their 70s, mid 70s. And um, they were like a pair of teenagers in front of me. They were treating it like an adventure, but really there was an awful lot of my sister, who Olivia Olivia Smith, who came with me. She um, she found out all the backstory. I was only interested in logistics, where we're going to get him to, how soon we can get him on a flight, or whatever. Whereas she was very good with the interpersonal stuff, you know. And she'd say, you know, that couple that were kind of seemingly full of joys. Well, he witnessed a bridge being blown up, and a woman who was on the bridge you know, being blown up with it. I mean, and, you know, she had, I, she just had that skill. She would um, go and look after the bed, you know, our bedroom the UK, that we shared with the UK and then the, 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 for anyone going to Ireland. And she'd help clear out that because at one stage there was um, a vomiting bug broke out in the whole building. So they had to clear everything out and, you know, disinfect deep, disinfect well, everything and all that. Rosario, what kind of an experience was it for you? I mean, you know, personally, I, I would imagine that an experience, like, it, it, it's a very humbling experience. Oh, very humbling. Um I was well, first of all. I was very impressed by the Ukrainian people themselves. The, their res resilience and their determination to go home—that was their priority—and um, their forbearance. You know, so that was very impressive. They had witnessed a lot and they'd been through a lot. Now we didn't get a lot of that backstory because the translators who worked with us, who are often of Ukrainian origin or Russian origin, so a lot of people who were acted as translators came from the UK and they um, felt bad about what was happening, you know, especially the Russians. So they would act as translators because all the Ukrainians would understand Russian as well. But they would get a lot of the backstory. So the, the circumstances around the trauma. So we were protected from a lot of that. Yeah. We, we, heard, we heard many, many stories of, of what people had been fleeing and the terrible sites they were running mm. away from. Do you know, one question before I let you go, Rosarian, is yeah. it's one that comes up and look, we've taken in and we've welcomed quite a number of Ukrainian refugees now. And if you just address this question briefly, because it does come up, people say, look, yeah. we have a massive housing crisis of our own. How can we be taking so many people in from Ukraine? Yeah, and that is a legitimate question. I mean, that's a very real problem. And, you know, this is something we should have addressed in relation to Irish people post um, the economic crash. You know, this is something we didn't do very well. 
for our own at that point. I suppose the only answer I can say to that is this is an emergency situation. Most of the Ukrainians I met don't really want, don't see themselves here long term. Mm. They want to go home. They want to go, probably they'll end up going back to the peaceful part of Ukraine, wherever that'll be. Um, I, I, they didn't necessarily want to be here, but they were, having said that, they were delighted with the hospitality okay. they have received since they got here. But in relation to the housing crisis, I know a lot of them are still in temporary accommodation anyway, as in um, hotels or mm. colleges. With mm. um, So that's not even, so they're not even in uh permanent any kind of permanent residence it's not as if they've been given houses yes. i don't think there's a competition for housing um they're in very i suppose transitory type uh, accommodation some of yeah. our are still in hotels so it's not as if they're yeah. insecure settings the, the, feeling the, the, oh, I'm one thing they're not going to do uh, i think is fair to say they're not going to make our own problems worse oh definitely not and yeah. if anything in a way, it's actually helped to highlight it. It's actually helped to highlight the fact that we need to look after our own. And obviously, we need to look after the Ukrainians, too, because that's obviously a dreadful situation, which we can somehow relate to having in the, you know, an aggressor come in and sort of Indeed. steal your sovereignty. Indeed. You know? and, and, that's kind but, of, and, um, and that's kind of, I think, why there is so much empathy out there with the people of Ukraine. I'd love to talk more, Rosari, and maybe we will someday. But thank you for what you've done and for the work you've done and for telling to us about it. Uh, this is Rosari. Uh, Dr. Rosari Griffin, Interim Director at the Centre for Global Development at uh, UCC, who just went over there, got stuck in in a place called Shemish, and uh, just got stuck in helping the refugees and is telling her story with her. Thank you very much for that. Corks 96 FM. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.